Hello, everybody. I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Ray Zimmer. And welcome to Albumatics, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. This episode, we have a first-time guest co-pilot on the show with us, Mr. Curtis Longclaw. Curtis, welcome to Albumatics. Well, thank you, Aaron. I really appreciate you letting me come on the show, and uh, I always enjoy listening to the podcast. I, uh, I started listening to you guys because my son lives in Orlando. He's 15 years old. He lives in Orlando with his mom and stepdad. And I was looking for some podcasts to listen to on the long trek from Atlanta down to Orlando, and I found you guys. And uh, I really enjoy listening to the track-by-track analysis of uh, music. I'm just a big-time music lover, and uh, it's uh, I, I really, really appreciate everything that you guys put into the podcast, and the, the production's really good. And uh, I, I was just thrilled when you when we were talking back and forth on Facebook about different albums and stuff when you asked me to come on the show because, uh, like I said, I'm a lover of music and all of its the technical aspects of its production. And uh, besides that, I've always wanted to be on a podcast wherein the host uses the word penultimate in every episode. <laughs> <laughs> then you've come to the right place. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you for the kind words. So, Curtis, pick the album we're going to review this episode, and he chose Rush's 1982 album, Signals. Curtis, tell us about your history with Rush and how you came to this particular record. Well, uh, I first heard Rush in the early 1980s when I was in high school on the radio, but I believe my exposure to them was limited to songs like Tom Sawyer, Limelight, and Spirit of Radio, songs like that, you know, and... Uh, after I graduated from high school in 1984, I went to my first Rush concert at the now defunct Omni Arena uh, in downtown Atlanta. This was uh, October 30th, 1984, and that was the Grace Under Pressure tour, which was the album after Signals. But um, ever since then, I've been a big-time fan of Rush. Now, I have to say that carefully. I, I have to be careful not to say I'm a big-time Rush fan. That's right. You don't want to say that. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big-time fan of Rush. <laughs> There's a boy band called Big Time Rush. Oh, I did not know. Yes. <laughs> That's the kind of rock I live yeah, under. Yes. Anywhere. <laughs> they even have like a TV show for like kids. Oh, right. Like a Nickelodeon show. <laughs> yep. Alrighty then. Well, yep. good to know. Terrible. I won't make that mistake now. Thanks for the heads up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um... You know, ever since I went to that show, I've been a big fan of Rush, and uh, I've seen them in concert a total of ten times. And uh, actually, in the uh, on the 2010 Time Machine tour, I actually won a meet and greet with Getty and Alex. Whoa, very nice! In a drawing at one of my local radio stations, uh, which is uh, Rock 100.5, and uh, it was very corporate. You know, I mean, you go in there and you, you you get to shake their hand and you take a picture with them and you're basically out of there. Okay. But it was before the, the show that night and it was, you know, it was, it was still, you know, very satisfying. And, uh, also Getty released a book, uh, earlier this year called Getty's big, beautiful book of bass. And, uh, I purchased a copy of that book and he was actually doing a little tour where he would show up in, in your town and sign a copy of it for you. Mm -hmm. So I got to meet Getty again. And uh, that was a lot of fun. I actually got to talk to him for like about maybe 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah. But nice. it, still, nonetheless, it was nice, you know, just to be able to tell him thank you, you know, from one of his loyal fans. Absolutely. So what about Signals? So at that first Rush concert that I went to in 1984, the second song they played on the tour was Subdivisions. 
And I had vaguely remembered hearing it on the radio, but uh, I never really paid that close attention to it. I don't even know if I knew that was Rush at the time. And when I heard it, I thought, man, I really like this song. So I'm uh, the day after the concert, I went out and actually bought the cassette of uh, Signals, and I started listening to it, you know, over and over again. And I, I just really fell in love with the album. It's not my favorite Rush album. My, my favorite is actually Hemispheres, and my second favorite is Moving Pictures. But I would say that this is probably my third favorite. All right, Ray. Um, well, I remember hearing like Rush. I heard Tom Sawyer on the radio when I was a kid, um, but I mean, at the time I was listening to a lot of Top Forty stuff. I liked it, but they were completely off my radar. I played in the marching band and I played in the drum corps, so like there were always like two or three like you know Neil Peart like disciples in any type of drum corps you go yeah. into for obvious reasons. So like I heard a little bit more about Rush from the guys in the in the drum corps, um, and then I remember hearing. Uh, Time Stand Still on the radio, and I thought, well, that's kind of cool. This is different than what I had expected. And I got Hold Your Fire for Christmas in 1988, and I liked that one song, but at the time, the rest of the songs in the album didn't really grab me. Now, as I've come back to it, I actually do like a lot of stuff off of Hold Your Fire, but at the time, you, you look at the inside pictures, they're all like got these black and white photos. I, I think that's my least favorite Rush yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I remember looking at the picture, like, wow, they're kind of fey so uh, <laughs> it's like I, at the time I was, also, I was also getting into like speed metal and stuff like that too so that was like completely off my radar then again and then around 1999 i got somebody gave me a copy of 2112 and i was like this is the shit there you go uh, and then from there like i got onto my brother's spotify account and i've been dipping into the rush pool uh ever since nice. as far as this album is concerned i had heard subdivisions but really that's about all i'd ever heard off this album yeah. not even new world man you never heard that oh before? yeah new world man yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. the other big one yeah, yeah. for sure so we covered Rush's 2112 album on an earlier episode of the podcast. So the short story is, I first got into Rush with the double CD Greatest Hits Package Chronicles. After my sister Shannon encouraged me to get into Rush, she knew I would like them because she knew my musical taste. It took me a little bit to get used to Getty Lee's voice, but once I did, I dove in headfirst in the deep end of the Rush pool. I can't remember exactly when I got Signals, but it was probably the late 90s during a period where I got all the Rush CDs, and since the 90s, I've been a major fan of the band. Big time Rush fan. (laughs) (laughs) So here are some basic facts about this record. As they appear on the band's Wikipedia page, so don't blame me, Signals is the ninth studio album by Canadian rock band Rush, released on September 9th, 1982 on the Anthem label. It was produced by Rush and Terry Brown and was recorded from April to July 15th, 1982 at Le Studio, Morin Heights, Quebec, Canada. It reached number one on the Canadian album chart and number 10 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified platinum by both Music Canada and the RIAA. Now I'll give you the band's lineup card. We've got Getty Lee on bass guitars, synthesizers, and vocals. Alex Lifeson on electric and acoustic guitars and Moog Taurus pedals, and Neil Peart on drums, percussion, and brief vocals. Additionally, all music was written by Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson, and all lyrics were written by Neil Peart, with one exception. Okay, let's start up a track-by-track analysis of this album. We begin with the first track, Subdivisions. Subdivisions. Nowhere is the dreamer or the misfit so alone. 
Curtis, what do you think of this? One of the things I love about Rush is the complexity of their music for most of their songs. Rush has a way of changing time signatures multiple times within a song without you even noticing it. Uh, this song, I believe, varies between seven-eighths and three-quarters. Beyond the great musical arrangement of this song, Peart's lyrics were something to which I could relate to when I was in high school. This is essentially the geek or, or the nerd anthem. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. In middle school and in the early part of high school, I was bullied a little bit. So I can definitely identify with the feelings of isolation and rejection conveyed by this song. Uh, Peart has actually uh, gone on the record and said that the lyrics were largely autobiographical. How, you know, back in those days, we didn't have, you know, these, uh, you know, anti-bullying campaigns. All we had was Rush. <laughs> and yeah. We had this song. Yeah. And right. so... Um, and it's like my friend Paul Maynard up in Olympia, Washington says, he says, you know, the geeks shall inherit the earth. <laughs> when you look at life beyond high school and beyond, you know, all these cliques and all these things that happen in school, the, all that stuff just disappears when, when you go out into the, into the real world. You know, the truth of the matter is, where are those bullies today? I mean, <laughs> they're largely nowhere to be found. And the, those of us that were, had our nose in the books and, we're, we're doing all the nerdy stuff. We're the ones that are basically running the world now. So, you know, I, I love this song. I, 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 you know, instantly had a connection to it. My only complaint about this song is the crappy production. And what I mean by that is Alex's guitar is virtually non-existent. It is so buried in the mix that you really don't hear it until his solo near the end. And even then it's not all that prominent. Interestingly, I found a, a remixed instrumental version of subdivisions. Apparently somebody had, you know, got a hold of the original eight track, 16 track recording or whatever, and remixed it and took Getty's vocals out and cranked Alex's guitar up in the mix. And it sounds really, really good. You can find it on YouTube if you just search for subdivisions, rush instrumental. Hmm. And it's, uh, it's actually closer to the way it sounds live. 20 years later, uh, rush released the album vapor trails and there was this huge uproar at the time about how crappy the production was on that album and how, oh, man, Vapor Trails needs to be remixed. And they finally released a remixed version of it, but no one ever remixed Signals. I, I, I always thought that Signals could use a remix specifically because of this song. Was there a big outcry to remix Signals? Because I remember the Vapor Trails ones. Mm-hmm. That CD was so friggin' loud. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that, uh, yeah it was so brick-walled. <laughs> That was the bitch about it. And then uh, they ended up actually remixing it. But I don't remember them talking about Signals. No. I, like I said, I, I don't remember hearing anything about it. Uh, I I had just always thought that it that it could, you know, use a, a remixing. <laughs> yeah. So, but but other than that, uh, you know, this, I love the song. And uh, there, there's a lot of debate over who actually says, su- you know, the word subdivisions in the song. It, it depends on where you read it. Uh, some places it says that it's Neil Peart that actually says it, which I always thought that it was. But some people say that it's uh, a man by the name of Mark Daly, who's the evening newscaster and the voice of Toronto television uh, station City TV. So uh, I don't know which one is, uh, you know, which one is correct. But if I was a betting man, I would say it's Neil because <laughs> it does sound like him. It sounds a lot like Neil's voice on Caress of Steel. So in the in the necromancer. Yeah. All right. Ray? 
Um, I, I really do like this song. Um, I love the synths that have kind of come up into the forefront. I mean, it would be kind of easy to dismiss this as a bad direction change because we all really expect to hear those riffs, those that lock in with the bass, and you really want to hear Alex rip it up. And kind of along the lines of what Curtis was saying, I do have, it's kind of going to pop up throughout this album. Like, there's times where, like, it's if you look at like any type of picture, there's forefront and backdrop. Alex is kind of forced to the backdrop. I mean, he's really got to work his ass off to get his bones out on this album. That aside, I love the synths in this song. They just need to balance it better. As far as the lyrics go, I mean, you got great things. You got teen, teen peer pressure, suburban hell, um, getting stuck in a track that you know you can't really get out of because that's what it's expected of you to do. Or at least that's what I got from the from the lyrics anyway. At the four minute twenty second mark, we get a guitar solo from Alex, where he's kind of like almost channeling like a mixture of Hendrix and Neil Young, with like the uh, overly tremoloed vibrato on some of his notes and those octave parts in there. Uh, it's melodic and to the point. So, I, for what little space they give him on this album, he makes use of his time well. Yeah, yeah. This is Rush classic. And it kind of signals <laughs> the direction the band was heading, which I'm going to go into that a little bit later. It's very keyboard heavy, like we've been saying, but it's both atmospheric and melodic, so much so that it seems like Alex's guitar is pushed to the rhythmic background or to the side. I think even Neil commented that Alex was playing the rhythm instead of the lead mm-hmm. on yeah. this. Yep. It periodically changes time signatures, and I'm glad you illuminated that for us, Curtis, because I could not... I'm not skilled enough to count out what they exactly are, but that's definitely a rush thing, and they're very good at making odd time signatures seem natural, not forced or confusing. I think you worded that really well, too, Curtis. Like you don't even notice that it's happening. Right. Getty's bass moves to the front during the pre-chorus and chorus, and I dig the little flourish before the actual chorus. Oh, does before the actual chorus. big time. In the chorus, Neil says the word subdivisions with his voice processed, and Alex would lip-sync this in concert, though I now know that that's debatable. Actually, I always thought it was Alex, because oh. <laughs> he's the one who did it in the video, and you know, oh, right. yeah, yeah. In my research, went, oh shit, that was Neil. <laughs> now there's a third party. I'm really messed up. <laughs> Neil said this was the first Rush song that was keyboard-based, and it made himself and Alex the rhythm section as opposed to the usual Getty and Neil, except for the solo section where, hey, Alex does show up. And it's mostly long, drawn-out notes, but it fits. Neil's lyrics are always quite literate. He never writes about sex or having a good time like typical rock bands do. This is about conformity and trying to fit in, whether you're a kid in school in the suburbs trying to become a part of your social group or in the city being a part of the rat race. you got to be cool or be cast out, socially ostracized. This is one of the great Rush songs, though, and it was the second single from the album. Uh, i got to give a, a shout-out to uh, Colin Hanley. He's a guy who lived on my dorm. <laughs> he had this band called Synesthesia back in the 90s, and they did like a lot of prog metal and stuff like this. He had a, a synthesizer set up in his room, and he would play the song nonstop on his keyboard. Really? Oh, yeah, for like about a good year. That's all I heard every time I got back from like my Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes. Well, you must be sick of this then. I, I was at the time, yeah. but then it was like, you know, it's like Stockholm Syndrome. You know, you, you, you learn to identify with your, with your, your, your terrorist captor. Right. <laughs> no, I love the show out of this thing. <laughs> the next track is The Analog Kid.
Curtis, your thoughts? Well, this song is something to which every young person can relate, I believe. Uh, although the song is a rocker, and thus the tempo is very upbeat, lyrically you have the antithesis. Uh, a boy is daydreaming on the grass about leaving his seemingly mundane existence. It's not depressing per se. It's just it's not like his home life is terrible or anything. It's just that he's longing for something more. Musically, the production is a little better than that on Subdivisions. Alex's guitar is much more prominent on this. I think his solo on this is absolutely brilliant. I've never heard anything like it. It's very good use of the whammy bar. <laughs> and parts of it kind of sound uh, Middle Eastern to me. I don't know, know if you guys hear that, but I hear it. Mm -hmm. Neil really keeps the tempo going with some unique drumming. And this is probably my favorite song on the album. On the, uh, on the 2012 Clockwork Angels tour, Rush brought this song out of the mothballs and started and played it again for that tour. And when Getty introduced it, he said, here's a song which just turned 30 years old. And I thought it was, you know, that was a great time for them to start playing it again. And the place just went nuts because this is definitely a fan favorite. Uh, one other thing I'll say is that there's a Rush tribute band that my wife and I go to see here in Atlanta called The Spirit of Rush. It's headed up by a young lady named Vicki Hudson. So she handles Getty's vocals very well. <laughs> and uh, they play this song as well as subdivisions. And my, my wife tells me that she, that those are like her two favorite rush songs. I, I turned her into a rush fan actually. Good on you. Yeah. And, and she said that those are pretty much her two favorite songs. And I just looked at her and said, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a keeper, sir. You got yourself a keeper. That's right. <laughs> All right. Ray. Um, this one, it really kind of cleanses the palate, <laughs> like after such a synth-heavy intro song. And I said, I like the intro the intro song with Subdivision. I like the keys on it, but this kind of almost like it rotates. The synths are still there, but they kind of rotates more to the back. And you get that intro triplet riff which, in which Getty and Alex just kind of lock in together. And it's fucking almost like a mosquito in your ear. It's fucking awesome. Um, not that having a mosquito in your ear is awesome, but yeah. Anyway, I digress. Whoa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, yeah, and the one minute, the three second mark, the synths kind of come back in for the chorus section. So they're not completely out of the picture. They're still there in a way. But Holy Solos, this is like one of my favorite fucking Alex Lifeson solos too. I mean, he's got some incredible like fast uh, speed picking. And then he gets some weird guitar monies in there. And I think, Curtis, I could be wrong, but I think that I, I got the same kind of Middle Eastern thing to it because I think it's the interval with the guitar money because I think they're just they're just doing perfect fourths and perfect fifths, which kind of sounds like a like a sliding kind of an Eastern kind of a thing. Right. I'm picking up on that too. Um, this song is friggin' awesome. Yeah, I dig the main riff that the bass and guitar play together. The synth is staying in the background, which is where it should be. <laughs> this one's got the faster tempo in the verses. It's much more straightforward. Getty's just phenomenal on bass, and again, it's prominent in the mix. I dig the vocal melody, and I'm noticing something about Getty's vocals on this album. He's more controlled. He's relying less on screams and just delivering the melody. To my ears, his singing has really improved from the earlier records on this album. The chorus slows the tempo, letting the synths provide an atmospheric, dreamy landscape while Getty almost croons the vocals. It's a little jarring from the verses, but it still works for the most part. As everybody said, Alex's solo is a barn burner. He tears it up, and I wondered if it was a chorus effect on the guitar Could doing have been. because yeah. his guitar tone on this record is really odd to me too. Yeah, yeah, no, he he's had to make it stand kind of out effect. I think it's a chorus effect that he's using on his guitar. It's weird. It's oh, he does, his, on a, especially on the more policey sound side. Yeah, stuff. It's, it's not it's his weird. normal tone. Yeah, no, no, and he, it kind of irks me a little bit. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, 
The lyrics are about a young man who seems to be getting in touch with his feelings. Possibly he's hitting puberty, lying in the grass and experiencing the world with his senses and letting them fill his dreams, whether about the natural world and the cityscape environments or the fawn-eyed girl with sun-brown legs. Didn't I say Neil never writes about sex? (laughs) Is he making me a liar? What the fuck? All these sensations are overwhelming the boy, but he wants to experience them. It makes him want to travel and see for himself. I dig this track, and it was the third single from the record. Yeah, you know, I think this is a definite direction change. Like this is that's this is point in the direction where his vocals are going to go. Although I like his screechy vocals, man, on fucking twenty one. Yeah, I don't, I don't I, hate them, but yeah. I, I, I notice there's actually this record signals a lot of signals, a <laughs> lot of changes. Yeah, for Rush, totally musically and the way Getty sings. Yeah. So well, and I, I think consequently the fact that he's not depending so much on the screams. Getty actually, in in more recent years, actually sings better on these songs than when he tries to sing something like "Free Will" at you know at the very end where he has to you know hit real high notes and he's he's having a real hard time doing that. Right. Uh, he's he's very even keeled on this album, and anytime they play a song off Signals, it it always sounds good because he's that's basically where his it's in range uh, vocal range is now. Yeah. So like listen, I'm trying to to screech out the temples of syrinx oh, yeah. the, you know, from, <laughs> bad stuff yeah, because it's all screaming oh the, yeah, the yeah, yeah thing, so. right the following track is Chemistry Curtis, let's have it. Well, interesting subject matter on this song. It's it the way I take it. It's kind of a comparison between how chemicals interact and how human beings interact. With actual physical chemistry, when you mix two substances, you're always going to get the same result. Now, when you mix two human beings together, you're always going to have a different result. That's why it's said in relationships that some people have chemistry and others don't. Uh, people that are matchmakers find this out all the time. You can put two people together that are just alike and they don't get along at all, but put people together that are opposites and they get along great. Now, specifically in this song, I believe that the people that they're talking about is them, is the band. Yes. I'm speaking specifically of the lyric, uh, one, two, three, add without subtraction, sound on sound, multiplied reaction. And all three of them have lyrical credit on this song, unlike all the other ones, which, which I believe are just Neil. Uh, I don't hate the musical arrangement, but it's it's not my favorite on the album. I, I would think I think actually it's probably my least favorite song musically. It's okay. Alex's solo again is okay. Uh, it's it's not so bad that I'm going to turn it off, but definitely probably my least favorite song musically on the album. All right, Ray. Well, once again we got a big synth intro, um, and then at the forty second mark. Alex is ripping it up with this little solo thing in the background continuously. And now at this point, it almost seems like they, they're using like lead guitar not so much as a portion of the song. It's just more like an effect. It's parsley. It's added to the side. It's for the added rock part. Or something yeah. like that. So I just think they need to crank that shit up and let Alex rip it up over <laughs> that synth intro, and I'd be pretty happy. 
Uh, then at the minute and 32 second mark, we get kind of like that cool synth melody, that da 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 I actually mm-hmm. like the melody itself with the guitar scrocking on two and four. And the solo at the four minute mark, it's, yeah, it's it's not a shredder by any means, but I'm going to say this about this. Instead of, and I like it when Alex goes all weedly, weedly, weedly as much as anybody else, he there's space between the phrases, which is, you know, kind of more like, you know, like a B.B. King kind of a thing. Um, mm. and that, and, and his, I guess shows, shows a little bit of maturity on his part, I guess. Although I don't know how much of it was a conscious decision by him and how much yeah. of it was by Terry Brown or whoever else was in, was at, at the, around at the time. Yeah. I'm sure his playing is, I mean, he originally yeah. was a Jimmy Page yeah. devotee. Yeah. You know what I mean, and that's yeah. how he sounded, especially in the earlier days. Oh but. yeah. 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 But, um, there's, there's a decent, it's an okay soul, not the greatest one, but it's, it's, it breathes, which is kind of cool. So this is truly a full band collaboration, both musically and lyrically, which didn't happen often in Rush. The music was developed spontaneously during soundcheck on the Moving Pictures tour, and they didn't realize it until they listened back to the soundcheck tapes and structured the song from them. The rhythm section is a standout for me on this. Getty's bass is just the tits with his fills, and Neil Peart is Neil fucking Peart. Though Alex's lick as the song kicks in is cool, like you were saying, Ray, and the solo is still tasty to my ears. More keyboards taking up melodic ideas in the pre-chorus. It's done well, but it's starting to worry me. <laughs> to me, the lyrics are about the band itself, like you were saying, Curtis, and that hard-to-define thing that makes a band great. When you get a particular mix of musicians together and suddenly you just hear magic in the music, what do you call it? We say they've got chemistry together. Right. Neil said this was the easiest song to write on the album, and it kind of sounds like it to me. I'm kind of like you. Curtis, this is a good song. I don't hate it, but it resonates the least with me, and I'm gonna have to call it Aaron's Stinky Stinker. The next track is Digital Man. Curtis, what do you say? I remember that this was the second song that was played on the Snakes and Arrows tour in uh, 2008 that that I happened to see. In I believe it was in 1983 or somewhere around in there, Geddy Lee was interviewed and he was asked about the meaning of this song. And he explained that when they were recording this album, um, a man named Peter Jensen arrived at the recording studio and it was his task to perform digital mastering on the recordings. Uh, apparently this guy had no personality at all, but was overly confident in his ability to do his job. And at one point he was asked if he needed assistance with a place to sleep for the night. And to this, he sharply responded that he did not. And (laughs) thus the, the lyric at the conclusion of the song, but he won't need a bed because he happens to be a digital man. (laughs) (laughs) I believe there's somewhat of a connection between this song and the analog kid for obvious reason, the names of the songs. I think the song also is a commentary on how technology, which is supposed to make our lives easier, often makes it more fast paced and difficult. And, uh, you know, in the in the analog kid, the man has a simpler life. And when he 
when he gets older and he becomes the digital man, it's it's much more difficult. I, I guess I don't know. I, maybe that doesn't make any sense. But yeah, I, but I do think it's also a commentary on how technology, which is supposed to make our lives easier, often makes it more fast paced and difficult. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of this song, but the one part I do like is the musical interlude in the middle with the groovy bass riff, which is reminiscent of Walking on the Moon by the Police. Uh, Stuart Copeland was one of Neil Peart's big influences, as he's said on numerous occasions. And and this little interlude leads into Alex's solo, which is by far, to me, the most driving and interesting part of the song. But the rest of it's just okay for me. All right. Great. Well, it starts out as kind of another up-tempo kind of a rocker. Then at the one-minute mark, you get more of a kind of a reggae feel. And anyone who's listened to this podcast with me bitching about this before knows that, like, if there's one thing I can't stand is upper-middle-class white boy reggae bands. It just reminds me of fucking college and some dude named Taylor and a fucking drug drug trying to sing a redemption song. I just want to punch him in the fucking throat. (laughs) Um, But... That said, what actually saves this, Curtis, is something you just zoned in on. It just sounds like these guys were definitely doing their police homework. And the police are the only band that's allowed to do this, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. You know, fuck Jack Johnson, any of those other cocksuckers. <laughs> Gotta be the police, man. If you're going to go, if you're going to do reggae like that, yeah, by all means. I mean, even Alex's chords have like that same kind of Andy Summers chorus effect, like you had mentioned, Darren. Yeah. You can hear it very prominently on this song. And Getty Lee is a real star on this song. I think his bass line kind of dra- takes the song and drags it by the collar, especially when you get to those swung ethos. That dun, 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 dun. It's yeah. fucking awesome. And uh, when we get to Alex's solo, I actually don't have much on his solo, but except for the fact that I like how the band interacts on the solo because they increase in tension in the background while his solo is actually increasing in tension. And that... When you actually see that live, that's I'm sure that's, that's great. I mean, you can see other like jazz bands and stuff do like stuff like that all the time. But uh, it just kind of makes you this impression they're like listening to each other, you know, that there's more of a communication thing going on. So, Digital Man's pretty decent. Yeah, yeah. So this is the flip side to Analog Kid. This is about a cold, calculating man who adapts and changes quickly with the technological changes in the world. Maybe he's a tech guy in his job, a computer programmer. He doesn't have much personality. He's not emotional. He observes life around him, and he's curious about it. Maybe he'd like to take a break from his work, but he can't bring himself to slow down. Getty's bass again. How many times can I sing his praises? Not enough, apparently. The bass lick in the verses is fluid and excellent. Alex's guitar still has that weird chorus effect on it, and I can't decide if I like it or not. I Generally, I don't like it. The pre-chorus turns into a reggae rhythm and sounds odd, but not so bad that it's out of place. Rush was experimenting with a clash of musical styles on this record. And the chorus is totally different. It's slower, and the synths make a pulse like a digital heartbeat with added squiggles and noodles. Neil throws in all sorts of percussion goodness like cowbell and woodblock, and his hi-hat work is stellar, influenced by Stuart Copeland, like you said, Curtis. Mm-hmm. Alex does show up when it's time for his solo again. It's really echoey, but he's ringing out some of those notes, and he's making them count. It's another cool track. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on The Weapon, part two of Fear. <laughs>
Chris, lay it on us. Well, this song was the second part of what was originally a trilogy of songs, which cover the concept of fear. And the odd thing is that the three parts were released in reverse order. Part three was released first on moving pictures, and that was the song Witch Hunt, which I absolutely love. I love yeah, it, too. It's a great song. Um, and I especially love hearing it live. Part two is, of course, The Weapon, which is the song we're talking about. And part one is The Enemy Within on Grace Under Pressure from 1984. Now, <laughs> the, the funny thing is, on Vapor Trails in 2002, 20 years later, part four of this series was released, and it was the song entitled Freeze. But many fans don't count that one. It's kind of like the Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull of Rush. <laughs> and I totally agree with that statement. <laughs> you know, when, when awesome. Sean Connery and Harrison Ford and uh, all those guys were riding off into the sunset, they should have just left it at that. You know? I agree. Yep. And, uh, and the same thing with this, with this trilogy of songs. It didn't make sense for there to be a fourth part. No, in, in my, not at all. I agree with you, totally. Basically, the meaning of the song is that whatever you fear can be used as a weapon against you. And, of course, Neil has to you know, use this to take his signature pot shot at organized religion, as, <laughs> as he does from time to time. Uh, he says, uh, they shout about love, but when push comes to shove, they live for the things they're afraid of. And the knowledge that they fear is a weapon to be used against them. And uh, basically, you know, what he's saying, which I agree with, is that if, if, if your motivation for your morals and for everything that you do is, you know, fear of, you know, burning in hell for all eternity, then you, you really need to analyze your, your motives. You know, you need to you shouldn't be doing living your life the way you do out of fear. It should be because it's the right thing to do. I love the driving keyboard riff, which is most noticeable at the beginning of the song. The guitar solo is very spooky sounding, and parts of it sound out of tune to me, but yet somehow, strangely, it still works. It's a very deep and underrated song, in my opinion. And one other thing I'll say about it is I remember that at the first Rush concert I attended in 84, they performed this song. And I don't think that I, I could be wrong, but I don't think that they've performed it on any subsequent tour. There was an intro for the song. I remember this. There was an intro for the song on the video screen behind them. Do, do you guys remember Joe Flaherty from SCTV? Oh, Cal Floyd. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember him. Yeah, he had this recurring character named Count Floyd. And so Count Floyd actually introduced the song. And he came out and he said, I'm, I'm here to introduce a very scary song. <laughs> even, the, even the title scares me. It's called <laughs> The Weapon. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's thunder and lightning. And he says, you can't really enjoy this song if you're not wearing your 3D glasses. If you don't wear them, you'll only be seeing in one half D. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that character. Thank you for bringing that up, man. Wow. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Rush, you know, Rush has always had a, a good sense of humor. Yes. Uh, yeah. It, oh, yeah. Most of the time self-deprecating. But they, they have a good relationship with the, obviously, the SCTV folk because they're also Canadian. Canadian. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, they apparently asked Flaherty to do that intro for them. And they're also and very aware of what their audience is. Male, white, nerds. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> you go to a Rush concert, there's no long line for the women's restroom. Yeah, that's a big joke, right? <laughs> that's a meme. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember reading this thing. It was, I think it was the first time Rush actually made it on the cover of Rolling Stone, which is a big thing. It was in the early aughts. And uh, they were interviewing... Uh, 
this kid who was like, you know, at the time he would probably would have been like a teenager and he was like a, a fucking rush nut swinger from back when he was like in diapers. And the interviewer was like, so rush is really your, your band, right? And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and my boys, we all we do is sit around. We, we just kind of listen to Rush and analyze the music and lyrics. And the interviewer is like, you, you do want to lose your virginity at some point, don't you? <laughs> 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 kind of harsh, kind of hit close to home, but yeah. I thought it was funny as hell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, The Weapon, it starts out with that cool keyboard. Play, <laughs> and I think the guitar part in the background is kind of cool, too. It's almost like an... I don't know, almost like an old Piedmont bluesy kind of a thing, but just channeled through an electric guitar. While Neil lays down a four-on-the-floor beat. Um, I gotta say, I like his cymbal work on this song particularly, especially in the verse section. It kind of, it's kind of like jumps all over the place. It's, it keeps things really kind of interesting. And then we get to the chorus, which has almost like a, a weird Euro disco Sergio or Marauder kind of a feel to it, which is different, <laughs> you know, but okay, you know, I, I'm all for, for difference and trying out new things, I guess. And it's not, it doesn't fall flat on its face. It's just, it's really odd. Then we get some really cool atmospheric guitar, almost like moans, which I think you pointed out, Curtis. It sounds like almost like it's out of tune. Interplaying with the keyboard in that weird middle section, which leads up to a pretty decent guitar solo, which is good, but once it's down in the mix and it's just compared to the rest of the keys on this, and it's just, that just pisses me off. And this track is one of three instances, maybe four. I'm kind of, I might have fucked up my count. There's an odd fade out. It's more like a jam at the end kind of thing, and it just it, the jam just goes forever. It's like a really slow, slow fade out, and then the next two songs make up for it. But I'll get to that in future songs. All right. So it's cool. It's a cool, awkwardly cool track. Yeah, this fades in on a drum pattern with complex hi hat work that originally was conceived on a drum machine by Getty and his friend Oscar, and Neil took on as a challenge to actually learn to play. The drums lead the way with Getty's cool bass line and keyboard pattern. How'd that go again, Ray? <laughs> with Alex strumming those chorus chords. The chorus has the synths gaining in power and volume, and they take over the sonic space again, with Getty's haunted vocals over the top. The musical backing creates an eerie atmosphere, and Alex's guitar solo is long and also bizarre with that strange tone playing into the track's overall theme. Lyrically, this is the second part of the fear series that Neil came up with, in which the philosophical concept of the fear emotion all humans experience is examined from different angles. In this song, fear that the individual or collective holds inside them can be used as a weapon against that person or group by their enemies. Summed up in the initial quote from Franklin Delano Roosevelt and also the opening line of the song, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Neil was a libertarian free thinker who would occasionally let his worldviews and philosophies seep into his lyrics. No wonder the nerds dug this band. I mean, what else were they going to do? Bang groupies? <laughs> I dig this tune, and it was the fourth single. The following track is New World Man. Curtis, you like this one? 
Absolutely. This was the first single from the album, and <laughs> astonishingly, it was Rush's only top 40 hit ever. In the U.S., yeah. In the, in the U.S., yeah. It peaked at number 21 on the Billboard chart, and the closest to this was Tom Sawyer, which peaked at number 44. And um, this is ironic because they didn't put a huge amount of effort into this song, from what I've read. Apparently, it was fully arranged in one day, and then it was recorded the next day. Lyrically, uh, one might argue that this song is about the United States uh, because in 1982, the Cold War was still very prominent. And Peart's use of terms like old world man and third world man obviously refer to other countries. And uh, the United States is the powerful new world man with weapons on patrol attempting to save the day for the old world man from the Soviet Union and trying to carve a path away from communism for the third world man. I don't think that Peart is anti-USA. I don't think he hates the USA, but I think it was intended to be a warning of how the USA, led by flawed human beings, could misuse its power and make big mistakes and even unknowingly perhaps become an agent of evil. But that's just my interpretation. Uh, Simultaneously, it could be used as a warning to any individual who's on the cusp between adolescence and manhood and and is learning their skills and abilities and just making sure that they don't misuse them. Musically, the song is very simple. Uh, I always thought that the tempo picked up during the chorus sections, but it really doesn't. The The song is actually very consistent throughout. And as I said earlier, it wasn't something they pondered for weeks how to produce. Alex doesn't even have a guitar solo in this song. Uh, it's catchy and simple, which is probably why it became a top 40 hit. But as I said, ironically, they didn't spend a whole lot of time on it. That's my two cents. Uh, Ray. Uh, holy fucking police influence once oh, again yeah. on this. This holy is shit. all over the song, especially on licensed guitar work. Yes. Um, you got that great pre-chorus with the learning to catch the heat of the third world man. That section right there, I, I love that whole, like, whenever they repeat it. And they do it. How long is the song? Like, what, three minutes? Yeah, it's, it's short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of get in, get out. Deliberately short. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of fucking short, the fade out is whack as fuck on this album. It's like, I just... And it's just all of a sudden, like, somebody fucking ran, like, booked into the studio and said, wait, we got to turn this down. And they fucking turned on the song, like, right at the end. And they're like, they might have had to because they had to really limit the length. Oh, man, I get, I mean, that could have been it, but still, it's awkward. It's just, it doesn't, the ending does not work for me. So, but other than that, no, this is a uh, nice little confectionery rock nugget. Yeah. This has a blocky synth pattern that introduces and plays throughout the track, but Alex's guitar is finally up front as he adds arpeggios that Andy Summers would later echo on every breath you take by the police. Actually, this track in general makes me think of the police. Mm -hmm. Police influence is all over this record. Mm -hmm. More excellent hi-hat work from Neil, and Getty continues to play around and tinker with his bass line and keeps it fresh. The pre-chorus touches on the reggae rhythm again a little bit with background spacey synths and is cool as fuck, while the chorus races along with a tight riff from Alex and Getty's drawn-out vocals, which again are under control and don't rise into histrionics. In a lot of ways, I feel like this album belongs to Getty. His presence is so huge on all of these tracks between the bass and the vocals and the synths. He's, he's like took over. The melodies are catchy and the lyrics reference a modern day man learning from the past and adapting to the changes of the far more technology based modern world, but also can be seen as a metaphor for the United States with all the challenges and choices arising world power faces. As we've been saying, this track came together quickly as the band was almost done with the record and had space enough for one more short song and they set about crafting this under four minutes, arranging it in one day and recording it the next. 
Sonically, I feel like this track could have fit on moving pictures because it's got a good blend of synths and guitar that don't overpower each other, and I dig the shit out of this. The penultimate track is Losing It. Curtis, what do you think about the penultimate track? <laughs> well, to be honest, I didn't care too much for this song when I first heard it, but over time it's grown on me, and now I love it. I'm the same. Uh, longtime Katie Lang collaborator Ben Mink plays electric violin on this song, and it's, it's just absolutely beautiful. This is a song which was notably one that Rush never performed live until their final tour in 2015, the R40 tour. And even then, it was only performed at a handful of shows. It's kind of symbolic. Yeah, to me, yeah. To, and Unfortunately. Point, yeah. <laughs> because of the subject matter. Yes. But uh, to me, to, I, I think Rush had a tremendous missed opportunity here. Because I, I mentioned earlier that in uh, 2012, Rush did the Clockwork Angels tour, and they, they performed the Analog Kid on that tour, and they introduced it as a song that just turned 30 years old. I always thought that since on that tour, they were accompanied by a nine-piece string ensemble during the second set of the performance, this would have been a perfect time to perform Losing It because they got they got the string section right there, but they, did, they didn't do it. I, th- I always thought that was a tremendous missed opportunity. Yeah. And um, it would have been a real treat for the fans, but, but alas, they, they didn't do it. Now, regarding the R40 tour, I was lucky enough to be at one of those shows wherein Losing It was performed, and that was in Vancouver, British Columbia. I was there with my Washington State friends, Paul, Audrey, and Cindy, and they actually had Ben Mink there to perform uh, the on the electric violin, and it was it was absolutely magical. Oh, wow. In fact, when I went to see Getty at his book signing earlier this year, the one thing I said to him was, thank you so much for playing Losing It on the last tour. <laughs> and and he, he smiled real big. And I, I, don't, I can't remember what he said. He said something, but uh, he, he just smiled real big and you know get, gave a nod of approval. Uh, lyrically, the song is about growing old and losing the abilities of, of your youth. And references are made, of course, to Ernest Hemingway in two of his novels, The Sun Also Rises and For Whom the Bell Tolls. And uh, maybe the reason Rush never played this until 2015 was because they they weren't ready to face the prospect of ultimately losing their ability to do what they love the most, which is to record and tour. You know, the the song is just hauntingly beautiful. And one of the lyrics in the song is especially striking to me, uh, sadder still to watch it die than never to have known it. You know, that that says that to lose something is, is a lot more hurtful than to never have uh, experienced it. Yeah, that's a twist on that quote, like better to have loved and lost than not to have loved at all. Yeah, yeah right. that's, that's like the flip side of yeah, it. Yeah, the, the antithesis, yeah. And as I said, musically, the song is hauntingly beautiful. There's no guitar solo, but I love the slightly upbeat middle section containing Ben Mink's violin solo, and I think it's just perfect. 
I'm sure if my parents would have walked into my room when that was playing, they would they would have thought, what in the world is that? You know, turn that down. But I loved it. It was magnificent. I'll, I'll just say one more thing. Um, that's one thing none of us can avoid. The bell is going to toll for each and every single one of us one day. So we need to keep our minds sharp by doing podcasts like this and whatnot and not <laughs> yeah. and not just, you know, give in to the Grim Reaper. We, we got to keep our minds sharp. Damn straight. Right on, man. Ray. I got to tell you, this is my favorite song in the album. All right. Um, actually, I, I glommed onto it right away. Um, you got that moody keyboard intro. I love the guitar melody at the one minute, one second mark. That I think that's like really understated and just kind of like caps things off nicely for the song. Of course, as Curtis mentioned, the Ernest Hemingway uh, references, um, that got me off the bat because I, in high school, that's when I discovered Ernest Hemingway and For Whom the Bell Tolls and yeah. A Feral to Arms and The Sun Also Rises. So those, those are the three that I've read, and uh, I really liked it. So that, and then just with the overall moodiness and kind of maudlin feel to this song, it just, it's, it's a great package. But I gotta say, once again, the fade out is awkward and almost rushed, no pun intended. I think it just kind of fucks up the flow. And mm. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I got. I'm kind of like you, Curtis. This track didn't do much for me at all, ever. I think I just needed to get older. <laughs> and going back to it now, I hear it, and now it just completely resonates with me. I really, really like this track now, so. Another synth intro, this time with a melancholy feel, and Neil adding, that's glockenspiel, isn't it? I think so. Sam yeah. George! Yeah! <laughs> and woodblock percussion, while Getty's vocals are restrained and he sings with real sensitivity. There's electric violin played by famed Canadian producer and member of the band FM Ben Mink. Curtis went into all of that. It's got a choppy, pulsing tone. And Alex appears with this odd chorus guitar tone. And all of this music feeds into the moody vibe of the song. The violin also takes the solo, which is multi-track to sound like a whole string section. And it screeches at eardrum-piercing levels at points. Getty sings of a dancer who's gotten older and lost much of her ability due to age, and she's depressed and frustrated. While in the second stanza, the obvious reference is Ernest Hemingway, an American writer and sportsman who later in life struggled with sickness and depression and ended up taking his own life. Two of Hemingway's novels are referenced in the lyrics, which deal with loss of one's self-worth. I like the guitar lick Alex plays in the chorus, and this track is all about the despondent mood, which it achieves very well. And I, I gotta say, here if I had heard this live on their last tour, especially knowing now that basically, I mean, Neil's done. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I heard he hasn't even picked up drumsticks since the tour. Wow. And I know that Alex has big time. He has arthritis or something like that. So. Mm-hmm. That had to resonate with these guys playing that song, oh, especially sure. those two. Absolutely. Yeah. And that brings us to the final track, Countdown. Curtis, what do you think of the last one? Well, unlike much of Russia's catalog, there isn't any huge, deep meaning to this song. It's essentially a documentary of the first shuttle launch from April of 1981. And uh, apparently Getty, Alex, and Neil attended this launch and viewed it from a VIP area. And uh, the song 
features samples of radio communications recorded at the launch, which I think is brilliant. It's brilliantly uh, meshed in with the music. Uh, every time I listen to this song, I'm immediately transported back to my high school, Pebble Brook High School, to coach Joe Cheek's biology class because I watched this launch live on TV and I'll never forget it. I did too. It was so awesome to witness history in the making live on TV. And I'm not at all surprised that Rush chose to document this event with excruciatingly detailed descriptions of every aspect of the launch. Um, I don't, I'm not sure I would be able to describe it as well as Neil did. but um, Curtis, did you catch what that VIP area was called? No. Red Sector A. Oh. Was it, <laughs> no way. Yeah. Was it really? That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that, that explains where, where they got that from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love how this song builds and builds upon itself until the section wherein the launch of the shuttle occurs. This song heavily features the keyboards and includes an interesting keyboard solo by Getty. Uh, again, no guitar solo from Alex. It's very catchy, but the only part I don't like is the section about one minute and 58 seconds in, which goes do, 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 It just sounds out of place with the rest of the song to me. It sounds like circus music or something. I can't put my finger on it, but it only lasts about 10 to 15 seconds and then it's done. But I love the rest of it. And one final thing about this song. The shuttle program was actually retired in, in 2011. The last launch was STS-135 on July 8th, 2011. And once again, I think this was a, another missed opportunity by the band on the on the Clockwork Angels tour in 2012, since it was the 30th anniversary of this album and the shuttle was just retired. They could have simultaneously celebrated the 30th anniversary of Signals and also paid homage to the shuttle program. Uh, you know, just saying guys, you know, <laughs> you missed another opportunity in my estimation, but, uh, but I love the song and I think it's a perfect closer. I, lo I love the way it, uh, it fades like, you know, like Ray was saying, there's a few awkward fades on this album, but the way it fades on this particular song closes out the album very nicely. And, uh, I really like it. Ray, what do you think of it? Um, it's kind of, I like the song. The keyboard in the intro, it sounds almost like a darker answer to Subdivisions. You know how like Subdivisions, there's like a little bit of kind of hope in it. So like this doesn't sound, it's, it's, it's kind of, there's a, there's a similar vibe to it that I really can't put my finger on. Maybe it's just kind of the pulse of it, but I dig that. I also dig the helicopter swooping effect <laughs> in the yeah. intro of the song too. Plus all the Houston sound effects going on there as well. The Cape Canaveral talkover stuff is interesting. Yeah. Um, at the two minute, one second mark, we get like a little bit more rock movement in the song. I think that's the part that you were mentioning, Curtis. It sounds a little bit off place with that bass line. Right. So it starts to kind of propulse a little bit more in a rock direction. And once again, Alex is just not really there for those riffs. He's just there for rock atmospherics. So that's really the only blemish on it that I can think of. Um, yeah, he's, he's partially <laughs> yeah. a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But, and the fade out is not as abrupt as it was on the, on the uh, previous two or three tracks. No, it's a normal fade Yeah, out. it's or, so I, I guess they kind of like, I don't know what happened at that point in the production of this album, but it, it's a little bit more palatable. Yeah. yeah. You guys covered just about everything that I really wanted to say about this song. Um, I will say that uh, the music is the polar opposite of losing it. This is more exuberant and hopeful, and the vibe is more uplifting and celebratory. I like that main guitar riff, though. What you guys were criticizing, I like that. Da, na, 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 and he's driving bass in the chorus. But the synth presence is still heavy in the verses, and it takes a melodic lead on the solo sections. 
which doesn't sink the track for me, but Alex gets short shrift again, a sign of future things to come for Rush. Despite that, for me, this is one of the better songs on the record. It ends things on a positive note. Though most of the tracks on the album warn against the overuse of technology, when harnessed properly, it can provide historic and memorable moments. This was the album's fifth and final single. Now that the track-by-track is completed, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0-5 to system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which is complete crap. Curtis, what are your final thoughts on Signals? Well, Signals is not my favorite Rush album. Hemispheres is, and uh, my second favorite is uh, Moving Pictures. I would have to say that Signals is my third favorite. Uh, I give it a 4 out of 5. As I said, mainly because of some of the crappy production, particularly on subdivisions. But uh, it's it's a very solid album. It, there's a consistent theme. It, it's very subtle, but there's a consistent theme throughout all of the, the lyrics. And it really took a hold of me. And upon listening to it all the way through for the first time, it, it really grabbed a hold of me and made me want to listen to it over and over again. So it's definitely in my top five uh, Rush albums. Okay. Ray? Well, I got to say, overall, I mean, as with a lot of Rush albums, the songwriting is solid. I may not necessarily agree with all the choices that they made. I certainly don't agree with the choice of Alex Lifeson getting kind of pushed down to the mix. But that said, the keyboards are interesting. They have some really great melodies coming through those keyboards. So I'm going to give this a 3.75. I mean, I could see giving this album more time and having it bump up a little bit. But right now, if the initial shock of this week of listening to this album, I'm going to give it a solid 3.75. All right. By July 1981, Rush completed their Moving Pictures tour and found themselves having to follow up the most commercially successful album in the band's history. They took a three-month break to recharge their batteries and oversee the production and mixing of their second live album, Exit Stage Left. Then they began to write for the new record, including during sound checks on a North American and European tour that lasted from October to December 1981, so that by early 1982 they were able to flesh out the new songs to prepare for recording them that April. Rush deliberately set out to not repeat themselves and create a son of moving pictures, and to that end Getty's keyboards would have a far more prominent role than they ever had before. Signals is totally a transitional album. It's a signpost that signals <laughs> what Rush's sound was evolving into, an era sometimes known as keyboard Rush that I personally am not the biggest fan of. Nobody puts Alex Lifeson in a corner, and it felt like that's what happened in that era to come. But on this record, he does get off some kick-ass solos, and he's not entirely drowned out by the synths yet. Getty on bass and Neil on drums both bring their A-game, and overall there's plenty to like about this album. It's not a bad record by any means. That said, it's not my favorite, and I do feel it's a slight letdown coming after moving pictures, but it does contain two stone-cold Rush classics in subdivisions in New World Man, and it's for sure a worthwhile listen. I give Signals a three and a half, and I would recommend this album to any new Rush fan or a casual listener who's interested in doing a deeper dive into this band. A new musical direction for Rush starts here. Now we'd like to thank Curtis Longclough for coming on the podcast and feeling the rush with us. <laughs> Curtis, thanks once again, and is there anything you'd like to plug or let the listeners know about? 
Sure. Um, well, thank you once again for inviting me to come on and to talk about one of my favorite Rush albums. And uh, I have a actually have a blog at uh, retrozest.com. That's R-E-T-R-O-Z-E-S-T.com. I talk about all things retro, not just music, but also movies and uh, pop culture, that sort of thing. I'm also involved with uh, an annual event called 80s in the Sand. Uh, I uh, co-host 80s Trivia with my friend Dale Shoemaker there. You can find out about that at 80sinthesand.com. That's 80sinthesand.com. And uh, next year we've got some great musical artists that are going to be joining us. We've got Billy Idol, uh, Cheap Trick, The Hooters, Belinda Carlisle, Howard Jones, and many more. It's not shit. That's wow. a good lineup. Yeah, it's solid. It's, it's not just one genre of music. It's mostly music centering around the '80s, but there's a little bit of '70s in there as well. I'm just really fortunate to be a part of this this group that helps to put on this event, and uh, we'd love to see you down in uh, Playa Mujeres next year, just outside of Cancun. All right, nice man. We got an Apple Podcast review. Okay, it's a five star review coming from. Super listener Sam George. Get out of town. Oh, yeah. It's titled, I'm Only a Vessel, and it says... R4 is legendary among legends. With a broad vocabulary and a quick wit, Aaron leads the listener through albums that move us. It doesn't matter what kind of music. He and Ray Z deliver a thorough analysis every time. You're lucky to have stumbled upon this. Sam, you're the goods, man. Yeah. (laughs) And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show, like I just did. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us like Curtis just did? Give us a shout. We'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host a show with us. And we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Album Addicts, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ray. See ya. Rest easy, baby. Curtis is on the case. <laughs> I won't charge you royalties for using that joke. Oh. <laughs> My daughter would love to hear me say that. <laughs> By the way, I love I love your sister. Uh, she's I don't just she just has the bubbliest personality. She really does. Um, yeah, and that's yeah, really how she that's, is. That's how she is in yeah. real life. <laughs> it, it actually kind of balances things out. I yeah. Think. yeah, yeah. I wish she would come on more, but. Which I keep trying to encourage her. And everybody says right. that, too. Mm-hmm. Everybody says, where's Shannon? Where's Shannon? Ah, yeah. <laughs> you know, she, she pops on now and then. <laughs> Where is Charlie and Jan Brady and she's Marsha? <laughs> Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> Shannon, Shannon, Shannon. <laughs>
Oh, I got my notes ready. I guess you're, well, you know, I still gotta, oh yeah, yeah, I still yeah. gotta do the facts, man. Oh, that's right. Just the facts, man. Hey man, these clothes are lame. We just ate a bunch of bus boys, man. <laughs> yeah, we want to do something the same but different, you know? Prestige, <laughs> baby. Curtis is on the case. Was that okay to do that? I didn't know I like. No, no, that's fine. That's okay. Fine. All right, okay, cool. Good. good. I always go, I, I always think of uh, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High when uh, um, Spicoli was in his room and his little brother comes in there and says, Jeff, you got company. And he says, Get out of here, Curtis. I don't, I don't hear you unless you knock. And so ever since my, my friends and I saw that movie, they always quoted that to me. I get out of here, Curtis. <laughs>